chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. The stuff that was rattling around inside my head and hopefully from Holy Scripture and church tradition and my reason. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to answer questions of the day. And the question today is, um, what are you doing, God? Like, how are you doing your work in the world? like through imperfect people, imperfect ways. Um, through the psalm readings today, Psalm 16 and 17, if you want to read them, and 1 Kings 5, chapter 5, through verse through chapter 6, 1 through 7. We're going to look at that stuff with Solomon and these two psalms that really have very different messages but are stuck together, inseparable, 16 and 17, with very different perspectives on how God works in the world. And I think it's okay to have different perspectives at different parts of our lives on what God is doing in us. So whatever God is doing in you, I hope that you'll tell me about it. I'd love to hear from you, hear about your journey in life. You can always email me at runnermonk at gmail.com. If it goes to spam or something, uh, remind me or maybe reach out through the app, the Anchor app, or you can always call or text 512-571-4124. Blessings and peace. Bye. I love that we had the Psalm 16 and 17 read today. Psalm 16 um, speaks of the heritage that God has given us and sort of a heritage that endures beyond just one generation. Um, it says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a goodly heritage. And the word lines there, boundary markers, are the lines of your property, um, your property lines. If you've ever been in a property line dispute with a neighbor, you know that um, every inch matters and how it's surveyed matters and all those things that go into it can mean the difference of like, you know, $10,000, $20,000, depending on what inch or foot um, it's measured at. And so were ancient boundary markers observed. Um, the book of Proverbs and other places in the Old Testament make it very clear, do not move the ancient landmark. Um, a violation of trust, a violation of your neighbor is to move a, a, a boundary marker. And the psalmist is reflecting on this great heritage that he has or she has, um, that, that this heritage of inherited land is with them. Um, and this is a good thing. It's a good thing to inherit things from your parents. I don't know if you've inherited anything from your parents. I think most people don't, um, especially today in American society. We mostly inherit debt from our parents. We inherit um, some sort of living arrangement that we have to work out that puts them in debt in the final years of their life uh, so that the, um, their, any assets they had are pretty much absorbed by their care um, and our care because eventually it's going to be us um, and is us. And so um, in this ancient world that the psalmist lives in, this is something that happens where you leave property to your children and thank God for it. The Psalm 17 says the opposite. <laughs> this is the beautiful contrast of the Bible. 
you'll have a psalm about how wonderful it is to inherit land from your parents and be blessed by God that way. And the next psalm says that the wicked inherit land from their parents, and they seem to be doing fine and prosper. And they seem to do just fine as wicked people, inheriting prosperity and money and land from their parents. And here is this great juxtaposition or contrast of the Christian life, of the life in God. Um, we both celebrate the good things that we've gotten, if we've gotten them. And we also wonder how the world works. Why do the wicked seem to do so well? Why do they seem to keep getting elected and holding positions of power and doing terrible things on a grand scale and being wealthy and prosperous and jetting around the world in their yachts and planes? Why does this happen? This is the psalmist question too from a long time ago. And this is the contrast that even enters into the story of Solomon that we have for today that Scott read so well. Solomon is finally at peace. His name kind of means the peaceful one. Um, he is at peace. King David, his father, remember Solomon's mother is Bathsheba, and you know the story of Bathsheba. Solomon is the second son of David to, with Bathsheba. The first son died as God's judgment, as a punishment for what David did. Not only Dave, what David did to Bathsheba, but what David did to her husband, Uriah, what David did to his whole people, what David did to his army, what David did and didn't do. Um, his, the first child died um, in a very painful and lingering death that David mourns in a very profound way. And that is part of his penance, his path back to God. And Solomon is born. And on his deathbed, David's deathbed, Bathsheba comes to him and says, listen, buddy, you owe me. You better make my son king. And if you don't, there's going to be big consequences. David has like a whole bunch of children. He's already had some that have tried to become king, like Absalom and others who have tried to set themselves up as king. And David um, knows that any one of them could become king after his death really the strongest one or the one that's most popular, even the best looking. Remember, David was picked to not be the best looking candidate for the job, even though he was pretty good looking, it says. Um, he comes to power because God is looking for the heart, the king's heart, not this outward appearing king. And yet everybody picked Absalom instead of David because he was good looking and he listened to their concerns and he had great hair. That's why they picked him in this revolt that he's just put down. But Bathsheba comes to him and says, you better make my son king on his deathbed. And David agrees, and he does that. Solomon is king. The nation is no longer at war. There's a time of peace and prosperity. He makes this alliance with Hiram. It may not seem like a kind of a big deal to have this trade agreement with Hiram for the cedars of Lebanon, these giant trees that grow in the area of Lebanon. There's still a few cedars left in Lebanon. War, war is the biggest destructing force on trees. Um, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem the second time, um, they stripped the trees bare, the land bare of trees for hundreds of miles around Jerusalem, hundreds of miles. I mean, just like every single tree was cut down, every single um, uh, thing that could be burned or used to build a siege equipment. War is the worst destructive force on the planet. And as we look at Afghanistan today, um, we see the destructive effects of war there on every single square inch of that place. And we see it here on every square inch of our place, too, in ways that we might not expect. We see it in our own political instability. 
We see it in our own abuse of natural resources here in our land. War has an effect on every single person that's involved in it. Even if you don't think you are, you probably are. Um, and so Solomon is trying to make peace. And this, this political alliance might not seem like a big deal. It's a tree deal, but it's a huge deal. Every king in this time period fought each other anytime they could. There were very few alliances. Um, the, the, the alliances that, that Solomon is able to make with all these little kingdoms is really phenomenal. He does it through marriage mostly, but with Hiram, it doesn't seem like there's a marriage option on the table. So they do it with trees and money and resources. And they're sent back and forth. Hiram is the king of Tyre, which is a Phoenician city. The Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean mainly as traders. They had a navy, a uh, pretty formidable navy, um, and eventually they oppose Rome in the Punic Wars. Hannibal is one of their generals um, who invades Rome on their home turf. Hannibal with his elephants marching in the Italian peninsula. Um, mothers still today in Rome scare their kids into bed by saying, Hannibal is at the gates. Um, so Hannibal is a Phoenician warrior from a later time period, but um, or from an earlier time period of, of Jesus, but after Solomon. But the Punic Empire or the Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean through trade mainly and um, were an incredibly advanced civilization even compared to Solomon's kingdom of his day. The Hebrew alphabet that we use today is the Phoenician alphabet. Um, it is the alphabet that the Phoenicians used. And eventually the Aramaic language uses the Phoenician alphabet too. And so the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic, which is kind of like Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. It is, a, it is from the land of Aramea, Aram, um, which we would call Syria or Assyria today. Um, and so they use the alphabet too. If you read Hebrew today, you're reading the Phoenician alphabet. And the Phoenician alphabet had an influence on our alphabet. When we say Aleph, Beit, alphabet, we are speaking Phoenician at that point, the Aleph and the Beit, um, and down through the alphabet. So this trade agreement is really a powerful one. Jesus, when he is on the earth, goes to Tyre and Sidon and meets the Canaanite woman there, um, who is a resident of Tyre and Sidon. So there's this always this back and forth between uh, the kingdom of Hiram and the kingdom of Solomon, even into the time of Jesus. Um, it's a, it, you can still go there today. It's a wonderful place to visit beautiful on the Mediterranean Sea. But this trade alliance is what they what Solomon uses to build the temple. He can build the temple because he's not a man of blood like his father. His father fought in wars. And even though the wars were just, for the most part, the narrator tells us, he was still a man of blood. War has an effect on everyone, even if you're doing it for the right reasons, even if it's what we call a good war or a just war. It still poisons the soul. When we participate in war, war participates in us. And for the most part, that means that we can't build the temple in the same way that a person like Solomon can do that. So Solomon is tasked to build this temple. And, he, and this is what Solomon does. He enslaves his own people. This is the harsh facts of Solomon's life. When we look at him in his wisdom, in all of his political machinations and savvy, he has enslaved a third of his own people, pretty much, of the men of his kingdom. This is what Samuel warned the people about when they wanted to have a king. 
he would say, he'll take your young men and put them in his army and his workforce. He'll take your daughters and make them, uh, put them into factories to make stuff for him. He'll take your cattle and your sheep and your livestock, and the king will take all this stuff so he can be great. And that is what Solomon does. He basically enslaves his own people in an indentured servitude that they don't have a choice. It's like a draft, almost like a CCC or Civilian Conservation Corps, but they can't get out of it. It's not voluntary. And this is the sort of the coercive part of the temple building project that we kind of look at and say, hmm, where was God in all this? Where is God when the temple is built with nearly enslaved labor? Um, where is God in that? And what they do is they um, quarry the stone separately. They measure it precisely. So they slide it into place without any sound. There was no chisels at the temple site. There were no hammers heard there. Do you imagine what it sounded like to build this temple? Just stone sliding on stone very gently and quietly as people leveraged the stone to push it into place. And you can still go there today. Um, and see remains of that stone foundation, um, the stone foundation that eventually Herod built upon and was destroyed by the Romans. But we call it the Western Wall today or the Wailing Wall. It's often called a holy site for Judaism and a place where many people visit to pray. And um, it's also a place of great political conflict on the Temple Mount between the, the Muslim worshipers at Haram al-Sharif or the Alaska Mosque on the Temple Mount and the Jewish worshipers at the Western Wall right below the Temple Mount. And Christians sort of go back and forth to those two places and sort of try to figure out where they fit into the, where we fit into the story. But this is where it's built. So even in this holy moment, there is the, the sort, of, uh, sort of uncertainty of human evil and human coercion in the story. There is sort of a great moment of triumph that finally a peaceful man can build this temple to God. And yet the way he goes about it is coercive. The way he goes about it um, may result in a good thing, but in the way he does it, the narrator tells us, does hurt human life. And so as we do good things, we have to consider what are the effects of what we're doing? How are we participating in human evil on a big grand scale? How are we contributing to other people's suffering? I think um, some illustrations of this for our modern world might be appropriate. Um, when we do things that are perfectly legal, um, that we can do and get away with or do just fine, we have to think of what are the implications. When it comes to tourism, when we go visit a place far away, we have to think about what are the impacts of our visit? Um, how does it impact the lives of people there? And we can make different arguments. Tourism is good for economies far away. Um, when we engage in any activity, we got to think, what, what is the larger implication of this? This is what the biblical narrators are trying to get us to do, to think about, even if I was making the temple, how would I go about it? What would be the right thing to do if I was Solomon, if you were Solomon? And so we see this juxtaposition of, I'm thankful for the stuff God gave me, the heritage God gave me. But I'm also like not sure about how the whole system works, God. It seems like the wicked prosper. It seems like the most powerful people are rejecting God in their lives and in the lives of others. What is going on, God? And this is the, an the, the person that answers this question is the person of Jesus Christ, 
who goes to this temple and says, I will destroy this temple in three days and I will build it back up again in three days. And they didn't understand what he was saying. Is he going to blow up the temple with dynamite? Is he going to dismantle the temple? Is he going to destroy the temple? And this was the charge against him at his trial that he said he would destroy the temple. You cannot blaspheme against the temple. And the narrator tells us that Jesus was talking about his own body. He is saying, I am the new temple. All your hopes and dreams, all of the things you've built, all of the, the ways you've crafted your life, like I am this temple. Find your rest in me. Find God, God's presence in me. And the temple of Jesus now is you and me. St. Paul says this, echoing Jesus. Jesus is the true temple, the new temple that we worship in. Not defined or confined to any geographic place or space or language or tribe or race or anything. Jesus is beyond all that. He is the true temple in which we worship. And the other temple that is present with us now is the temple of our body together. Our body, the body of Christ, the church, is the new temple. It is unseen. And while we build shrines and churches and ways to commemorate and house that Eucharistic sacrifice. Ultimately, the temple is you and me. We are the temple. So celebrate that today. God went to amazing extent to build you and me and us together. And God is still building the temple, not with coercion and slavery, but with the freedom of our participation. We are building this temple together. Amen. Feast day of Thomas Gallaudet and Henry Winter Style. Uh, they both engaged in the ministry to deaf people at, in uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s. And Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. is named after Thomas Gallaudet, which is a deaf uh, university. And uh, Scott knows probably where it is. He probably grew up near that metro stop. I don't know, but I've been to that metro stop. Gallaudet, many times, um, and is a spiritual home for deaf people and St. Anne's Church there. So we thank God for ministry to deaf people. Last year on this day, we had Lawrence Wainwright Max, a deaf missioner, to a, to a deaf, he works at a deaf university in Rochester, New York, as and he speaks or uses American Sign Language. Um, and came and signed evening prayer for us last year on this day, which I vaguely remember. It was right in the middle of the pandemic. So memories are weird, aren't they? <laughs> I think that was last year. I'm thankful for Lawrence, who's carrying on the work of Thomas Gallaudet. O loving God, whose will it is that everyone should come to thee and be saved, we bless thy holy name for thy servants Thomas Gallaudet and Henry Winter Style. And we pray that thou wilt continually move thy church to respond in love to the needs of all people. Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And we pray a colic for Friday on 56. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, 
the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And a prayer for mission on 58. Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace. So clothe us in thy spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee, for the honor of thy name. Amen. Thank you.